What would the world look like if decisions were made by the people for the people? Dow or Never is here to break down how DAOs are disrupting traditional power structures and transforming the way we interact. If you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Dow or Never. This is the show to help you learn about the rapidly evolving world of DAOs from leaders and innovators in the Web3 world. I'm Isaac Patka, co-creator of Logos DAO. Today we're joined by Gabriel Tumlos, founder of Mochi and a pioneer in Web3 social coordination. Gabriel is an early contributor to the Ethereum ecosystem and played essential roles at Consensus, Gnosis, Ujo Music, and the Decentralized Music Society. Prior to that, he led the first blockchain research initiative at KPMG. We're excited to have you here. Uh, I first learned about Mochi at the Dream Party after DevCon in Bogota, um, where I met some of the team and was just very, very inspired by type of coordination you're all able to pull off. So I think a, a really cool place to start would be to just talk about what what Mochi is and what it brings to the what it brings to the crypto space. Yeah, most definitely. Thanks for uh, having me, Isaac. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and also a pleasure to hear that you actually came to the party. Um, I'm like every day I'm discovering somebody's like, oh, I came to that party in Bogota, and I was like, amazing. That's like the best picture we could give anybody about what we're trying to do. Yeah, it was like the highlight of my DevCon, I think. It was like at least the most fun social event that I went to. Oh, amazing. That makes my heart so happy to hear. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll introduce Mochi, I think, a little bit, and then I can work into, I guess, how we get to some weird like lucid dreaming party from that. But uh, yeah, so Mochi is a coordination game that we developed starting the end of my time uh, when I was at Consensus. And uh, kind of now is like reaching more fully its expression and how it can be used, I think, in the DAO ecosystem. And um, what I mean by coordination game is what I think other people mean uh, when they say DAO tools, but it's an analogy that helps us think about the things that we're building. And I think games are kind of the analogy that I prefer to use when I think about how we build things for kind of this next world that we're entering into that's augmented by Web3 tools and stuff. So Mochi is one of those coordination games. The reason why we call it Mochi is because the whole thing is basically developed uh, to help you, your DAO, your decentralized team, your remote squad, your remote organization, your gang, whatever it is you like to call your group of people stick together. So if you don't know what emoji is, and actually this is something I had to learn last year that some people don't know what emoji is. It's a tiny little uh, treat that uh, comes from somewhere in Asia. Most people uh, associate it with Japan, but it's made out of really sticky rice that gets smashed together time over time, like, you know, just like on and on and on until it becomes this kind of sticky goop. And then, uh, yeah, it forms this kind of like soft, but firm, very sweet treat. And that's a kind of a great analogy to think about, I think, how mochi operates. So, you know, we use it for all sorts of things. I think um, in our own community, uh, we use it to build the tech itself. We use it to kind of help encourage people in our community to pursue their dreams. So, you know, we make little teams in our organization, they play mochi. And they pursue whatever passion project, goal, habit, new dream that they have uh, together with other people in the community. And last year was kind of like our first steps out uh, into the crypto space again, because we ran this project uh, kind of outside of the crypto sphere for a while and then kind of stepped back into it. And now we're interested in finding other people who may need something like this for their organizations uh, as they're you know, kind of muddling around trying to figure out what to do in this uh, this bear market. So halfway through the year, we came up with this idea for using it to get people to lucid dream. And um, that's what I think brought us together at the dream party. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, I wasn't aware of like the that <laughs> lucid dream component. Like what, um, what have you found like actually gets a community to like stick together? Like, I don't know, like, like a mochi, because like, I feel like there's uh, a lot of the times people will talk to me about, hey, I've got some a great idea for some DAO or club or something. And it seems like there's like this missing ingredient that almost 
everyone except maybe you guys have don't know like how you actually do the part that um, makes everybody want to like stick together and keep working together and and log in and stay engaged every day like people think like oh well we just need it to be motivating enough or interesting enough but like what actually gets people to do that kind of like group goal setting or coordination that makes them feel like self-motivated to build that community? Yeah, uh, the missing ingredient is rice. Um, <laughs> I wish it was that simple. But no, I think uh, it's a really great question to kind of like think about. The answer is uh, there's so many things uh, that you have to include into a, something that like gets people to kind of want to stay there. And I think we were kind of like, it, you know, roughly it maps to what we like to kind of just call vibe like creating a certain kind of vibe that people want to stick around for, you know, that's a mixture of all of these things. But as it pertains specifically to Mochi, it's like we've built something very specifically that I think touches the elements of like what gets people to kind of like commit to things and stick to them long enough so that like they become something or people kind of like form relationships and like that leads to something even better in your community growing and that kind of thing. So Maybe telling uh, a story in this, because I could tell you how it works technically, but maybe telling a story and how it came together would help kind of flesh out some understanding. So when we were first kind of like knocking around ideas for how DAOs would work, uh, you know, in the next phase that we were entering of like human coordination and human social systems that we were building, a lot of the conversation tended to stick around, well, how do we move money around? How do we kind of get a bunch of money into one place? How do we create, you know, humane, sane systems for like distributing and allocating that money? Uh, then how do we make sure that those projects kind of like do what they're supposed to do, whatever. So that's kind of where a lot of the first conversations started. And, um, you know, the, a lot of the early tech gets built around basically creating voting and proposals around, um, you know, pools of capital that, that amass themselves in a very remote first context. At that time, I was part of a company that when I joined was about 30 people. Uh, and in the span of about two and a half years, I watched balloon from 20 to 50 to 100 to 200 to 500 to 1,000. At its peak, 1,200 people. So massive, massive rapid growth. And uh, the, the pool of people that had accumulated there were about as like, you know, rambunctious and rancorous as like, of a crypto anarchist that you can imagine. And um, so totally allergic to anything that involved structure, totally allergic to anything that involved having a title. You know, we had multiple conversations in the company about never adopting titles and never adopting hierarchies and stuff like that. So, you know, we had grown at this pace and scale at a clip that was like, you know, just way too fast and uh, had no structure. And in that time, I watched a lot of young professionals start to kind of like uh, waste away in the organization. You know, they were promised some kind of vision for a new future of organization and work. They came into it maybe with a project that they were assigned to, and maybe they did that project or maybe they didn't. Nobody cared. The thing was like, you came in and you didn't have a boss and like, maybe you did it, maybe you didn't. And then maybe you joined five other projects or maybe you just did nothing at all. So nobody really paid attention to what you're doing. So I started talking to a bunch of people because I was throwing parties uh, at the company at the time, uh, which which just like amassed a lot of attention from young folks. And I said, hey, what are you working on? They'd say, oh, I'm working on, uh, you know, nothing or I'm working on 10 different projects, which is effectively the same thing. And I said to myself, well, this can't be the future of work. This can't be your experience of like what it means to level up and proceed in a career and gain experience in an organization and like, you know, set yourself up for success in the long term. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a bunch of people onto teams, say two to three, four people uh, at a time, and I'll make you commit to working on one thing and one thing only. 
doesn't matter what it is. It could be related to work, could be related to your next NFT project, start a DAO, whatever. But you're going to commit to working on that thing for a period of time. Call it eight weeks, and we call that a journey. And so we'd put people into a group uh, of four, and what I had them do was commit by staking. So at this point, ETH2 was still an idea. Um, this idea of proof of stake was like, I think understood in an academic sense, but it was never implemented really at scale. And, you know, at the time, you know, this was like 2017, 2018, people are like, oh yeah, proof of stake's coming next year. Here we are, 2023, and it just launched last year, right? So big claps to that. But this idea of committing something, having something that you're willing to lose as you're required to perform some kind of task of objective was a really salient and powerful idea at the time. Um, so a lot of people liked Taleb, liked skin in the game, liked this idea of like, you know, you have to put something at risk. So I was like, okay, great, let's do that. You send me your ether, I'll hold it on my MetaMask. I used to be an accountant, so I would like log this all on Google Sheets and it was all very ugly and <laughs> annoying to, to kind of do. Uh, and then I had them commit to doing daily check-ins, daily stand-up check-ins like you would do on an agile team, right? So we had a bot that ran in Slack and it would ask you four simple questions every, every single day. Hey, how are you feeling? Hey, what are you doing today? towards your goal, what did you do yesterday, and what's something you're getting in your way, or what's something that you're planning. You answer that on time, it takes less than five minutes, uh, you earn a token. Uh, if you stake more, you earn more tokens. But if you don't answer it on time, or you miss, uh, you lose a percentage of that ether that you had staked. And if you keep missing, the percentage gets uh, greater, and then keep missing, your team starts to lose. So what I found after running this after its first cohort was um, a lot of people are actually like, happy and like making progress again towards like some objective that they self-set for themselves. And in my mind, that's how a DAO should be, right? Come into an organization, define the work that you want to work on, get small rewards for doing it, and then make progress towards some better, greater, you know, more idealized version of uh, the life you're trying to create for yourself. And that's eventually what ends up becoming mochi. So to go back to your original question of like, well, what are the things that kind of get people stuck into a thing? It's a combination of tech but it's also a combination of, again, the vibe. So like all the stuff around that was also just as important. Like I made shirts, I threw parties, I, you know, created stickers that people could use their tokens that they earned to buy. You know, they can buy, put these little mochi stickers on their computers and stuff like that. So, you know, creating an environment that was almost like a meditative experience in a like just chaotic, chaotic company was something that like really attracted a certain kind of person. And over the years, we've just continued that game and developing that game together and continuing to, you know, throw wilder and wilder, more extreme, interesting parties and using, using the technology to find different use cases where we can just continue to develop each other. And really, it's about that. It's just about growing the people that are around you and um, putting the energy and, you know, watering the garden, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like it's like an entire side of um, like organization building that is not captured in org structures and hierarchies it's like you know the actual social dynamics and or, and memes and like uh the stuff that the organization itself can't really exist and thrive without it but it doesn't it doesn't seem to me to be something that gets captured uh super well like organizations will have a human resources but like that's not for the you know social fabric building of the organization that's for like you know, protecting against lawsuits or, or something like that. So it seems like this is an entirely like, you know, missing department at companies that, that people hope just emerge, but often just kind of forget about. And then that's part of why a company doesn't work. Yeah, it can be. I think that's, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty insightful, you know? Yeah. We had a mini conference actually just in like a friend's basement recently. Uh, it was called Cyborg Camp. 
which is actually something that's been running since like 2008 or so. But we had like a little mini cyborg camp in my friend's basement where we were just kind of getting together to talk about uh, anything related to kind of how humans and, and machines interact and how that impacts coordination. And one of the things that we wanted to have a session on was just like, how do you almost like predict future crises or like pre-work through crises that might affect the social fabric of a, of a group um, before it gets to a point where it could cause a big, a big like crisis and collapse. Because it seems like a lot of, there's, there's so much fun energy and vibes in the early days of the DAO. And then like maybe, I don't know, six months to a year into it, there's just this weird mix of things that happen that cause, cause a big fracture. And so what people were, were wondering about what we were discussing is like, how do we maybe play some games ahead of time to figure out like, is this a group that can weather a crisis together? Or is this a group that would crumble? We had some really interesting insights from my friend's partner who's actually like runs leadership seminars in the Coast Guard. And like, she's responsible for like get taking recruits and teaching them to be like leaders that can have social skills. Um, and she had some pretty interesting insights about what can happen there. Um, but I'm wondering, like, is there are there any mochi games that you're thinking about that are like, I don't know, wargaming or crisis role playing or anything that can help a group figure out if they're um, a group that can work together or a group that maybe will fracture? Yeah, that's really wonderful. I I, I love <laughs> I love that as like an impetus for a group to like it's like, it's like a meta group almost uh, trying to figure out uh, how how to keep the group together by like trying to um, I almost like simulate the problems ahead of time. It's kind of fun to think about. I, I think role playing and, you know, simulation and LARPing all, like, are like great, I think, um, kind of domains for uh, companies to kind of play in uh, that want to solve some of these problems, right? It's like, you know, part of it is, is my, my view of organizations, I think, uh, to take a less kind of like synthetic route and use a bit more, you know, kind of like biological organi uh, organism kind of like analogies or something. It's something that like just does very simple things and like you create patterns uh, and these patterns create kind of like larger kind of like formations inside of an organization that, you know, some can, you know, be very prosperous and like bear fruit. And then there's others that like can become cancerous over time if the patterns are not solved at like at an earlier stage or a deeper, deeper stage. Right. So it's like you want to catch the cancer before it's like is stage four, you want to catch it at stage one so you can treat it. And the way that you do that is uh, through feedback processes. Right. And, you know, HR is, is kind of like can be kind of like, uh, you know, in theory, it should be it should serve that function. You know, in practice, often it does not. There, I did have one good uh, kind of like HR experience that involved LARPing uh, at the previous company that I worked at um, and role playing. And it was a really great feedback LARP basically that we did where you had some critical piece of, of feedback that you needed to give someone. And it wasn't the best news. You know, it was like they were they were messing up big time and like you needed to kind of tell it to them in some kind of compassionate way. The way that they had us do this was like, OK, so you're going to sit down with your conversation partner. And you're going to explain to that person the feedback that you need to give them. And not only that, you have to explain how you would give it. So like tell them the intensity level. When it comes to like critical feedback, I can be like a nine or a 10 spiciness level. So I was just like, okay, so you're me. This is the feedback you need to deliver. This is the intensity level. And like, this is like the effect of like what they're doing. And so you give that to your partner and then they play you. And then you play the person that you're uh, is receiving the feedback and you kind of just got to sit there and take it. And the person basically in, you know, five, 10 minutes tries to like, you know, play you and like turn up the intensity and stuff. And what I, what I got from that experience was 
like, holy cow, you are so intense. That felt not good. <laughs> I don't want to ever want to sit through that again. My God, like, you know, it's definitely making me want to change my behavior, but it's also making me feel like, oh man, I don't know if I want to work here. Right. But so, so I, I tell that story because like that person is nowhere near as intense as me. And I was like, oh my God, if I am like this much more intense, like it just gave me an insight, a mirror into like how something can feel when delivered. And it, it totally changed my way, my approach to how, um, I, I ought to give that in the future. And I'm not perfect at it. I'm still working at it. But like that one little LARP and role-playing experience helped improve a process that helped catch something I think that could turn toxic later down the line. Now, LARPs and role-playing can be more elaborate. So in, in Mochi, we've developed kind of like an alternate universe role-playing game that is still kind of like we're working out the kinks in it. But, you know, we've taken basically the backdrop that we have of like a semi-apocalyptic post-COVID world that is like kind of unfurling and created some using, uh, you know, stable diffusion and Midjourney and stuff created some like almost like escape the room kind of like uh, little experiences with people's characters that they can go in and almost, you know, be like some kind of quasi D&D style escape room kind of thing, explore through a different uh, character, um, different parts of your identity and solve problems together. And this for me is like the stuff of like, you know, what I want to be doing in an organization anyways. Will Fortune 500 adopt this? I'm not sure, but I'm sure DAOs out there are a little bit more open-minded and maybe interested in this sort of thing. That's like a fast, that's a, a fascinating game. Um, like what, what you said about the a person mirroring you and being able to like look into a mirror of how, you, how you're perceived is super useful. And then figuring out how to do that with stable diffusion and AI world generation. That would be a really fun, uh, that'd be a really fun company retreat where it's like, okay, let's go into the same room and then uh, there's just something picking up on your speech and doing this like world um, and reflecting back to you the influence that you're having on the stuff around you. And yeah, I'm, I would love to take part in some sort of like alternate reality AI generated LARP. <laughs> that sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I'm, I'm here for all the strange alternate worlds, yeah. We did a brief LARP with, um, there's uh, someone I know from the DAO space, uh, Ruth Catlow. I don't know if you know her, but she wrote the Radical Friends book. And she leads a lot of LARPs also in addition with this uh, group called Black Swan out of Berlin. I'm not sure if you've like participated in, in any of their LARPs, um, but they've done some really cool, uh, like whether it's like single day, multi-day, or even like week-long events where... Uh, yeah, it's like putting people in virtual worlds, creating different governance scenarios, or even just like role playing somebody else in your life and trying to like explain to them what we're trying to do in the Web3 and DAO space, or trying to like interpret what we're trying to do from someone who, uh, from like a critical perspective. Um, I found that those LARPs have been very eye-opening around like, one, how people behave, and then two, also like figuring out how to explain better to other people, like what we're trying to do and, and, and stay focused on the impact that we're trying to have. Um, so very excited about the any future Mochi LARPs that, that you guys might host. Yeah, definitely. I would love to do something more involved. Somebody had mentioned Ruth's work to me. However, I haven't um, had a proper chance to kind of unpack a lot of it. But I mean, this sounds like this is the work that's like, I think, going to transform. I think how people think about themselves at an individual kind of level, and then also how they relate to like how whatever organization that they become a part of. It sounds super fun. We'd love to participate in one. We'd love to build our own as well at some point. Nice. I'll be sure to make an intro. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
So I'd, I'd be very interested to learn like what's coming up for for Mochi. So like what is uh, like the the dream oscillator? What does lucid dreaming have to do with like group coordination? Is it just another cool place to LARP or like how does how does that actually impact uh, like group coordination and like teaching people to lucid dream? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's not, I think the link is not super obvious. However, there is a coherent world there. And that's the thing that I'm interested in building uh, in this next phase. So I can't remember exactly what was the triggering event. However, when I was a bit younger of a person, you know, I discovered kind of lucid dreaming just randomly, you know, like poking around on the internet. I think Reddit probably was probably the place where I came across it. You know, actually what it was, was I, I watched a film, uh, Waking Life, uh, when I was in college. And I, I became enamored with this idea of like stepping into kind of like the subconscious realm of your mind and being able to control different elements, I think, of your dreaming. And uh, for a small period of time after I graduated, I got really into lucid dreaming, got to the point where I was like actually quite good at it, but I wasn't yet in such a stable frame of mind where, you know, I had a little bit of a kind of like jarring experience and like was like, whoa, I'm not sure if I'm awake or sleeping, or whatever, kind of freaked me out. So I stopped. But, you know, the process of getting into something like uh, doing lucid dreaming every night is a fundamentally habitual one. There are people that uh, do naturally lucid dream uh, just, uh, you know, every single night. That's just what happens with them. They're aware that they're dreaming constantly and they use it to, um, you know, kind of like tie this back to what we were just talking about, like role play and uh, simulate different kinds of interactions that may be coming up. Um, I, I even actually interestingly met um, somebody last year who used it to wind things back. So, you know, they would lucid dream and they would have conversations with people that they already had and try to change just a tiny little bit about it to maybe, you know, when they wake up, uh, have, have a different approach to how they, you know, have these conversations. So it's like, it is another place where we get to kind of simulate some things. And about midway through last year, I got super interested again in this idea of lucid dreaming and then specifically using mochi to kind of like facilitate that for people. Because again, it's like, it's a habitual thing. The way that you get into the practice of lucid dreaming is not too dissimilar from meditation. In fact, it's kind of like the, the night mode version of meditation where every morning after you have a sleeping uh, kind of like experience and there's a dream there, uh, you kind of like ritualistically write down what the thing is. And then during the day, uh, you do these things called reality checks where you would kind of like identify something that doesn't work quite the same way in a dream. So for example, plugging your nose and trying to breathe through your nose in a dream, you're able to keep breathing because, well, if you weren't able to, you probably had a problem. Maybe your face is buried in a pillow or something and you would wake up. But, um, if you plug your nose and you continue to breathe, it's a trigger for you to understand that, Hey, oh, I'm dreaming. So that's a habit that you need to instill in your waking life to create the thought that when you're sleeping to go, oh, maybe I should check. And if you check and, you know, you identify that again, it's, it's, uh, it's working a bit differently then you go, oh, it's a dream. And then you can kind of have agency in that realm. So that was a set of habits that we were just like, oh, we can take mochi and we can like create a journey that's based around lucid dreaming. Let's get a bunch of people who have never had lucid dreams together and um, have them do daily dream journaling. And that became the first kind of like alpha cohort of what we're now calling the dream oscillator. So over eight weeks, we had people doing daily uh, lucid dreaming journaling and then also doing reality checks. And then we would take people's dreams and like the most interesting ones we would feed into mid-journey and then visualize them. So we put those into like a, a mega thread. Shout out to Saskia for that idea. And at the end of that eight-week journey, 11 people who had never had lucid dreams before uh, had lucid dreams. 
So it was effective in like getting the thing to work. And we all, you know, we use this kind of like idea of like groups sticking together, bonding, staking uh, this, this coordination game to, to make that happen. So we were just like, wow, okay. So we can like go into this space and we can use our technology to kind of do things that I think people have trouble getting going when it's just themselves. And the really th interesting thing about dreams is like, it's the proper metaverse. If you really think about it, you know, it's the space where things don't quite work the same way as like base reality. Gravity doesn't have to function in the way that it does. You can have multiple uh, kinds of, uh, you know, mythical creatures. You can interact with dragons and wizards and space aliens, and you can go to space and you can fly and you can do all these things. It's like really the proper metaverse. So there are some people that I met last year who would read books as, as kids. They would read books and then they would go into their dreams and they would scaffold out the worlds. They would spend their nights basically, uh, you know, creating these like fanciful worlds using the information that they had from waking life and bring that into the dream world. So, you know, I think as we're thinking about how we build metaverses and stuff, dreams are actually a really fruitful place to go to, to kind of experiment with like the substance of our subconscious and the things that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis and have it operate in a kind of non-rational space where we have just creative room to explore. So, you know, the success of that program ended up inspiring a handful of other things. Uh, one of those things being the lucid dreaming party that we threw in Bogota, which was like, hey, let's bring people into kind of a dreamlike universe for a second and try to use it as an opportunity to inspire some more forward thinking, optimistic, dreamlike uh, viewpoints in a time when, you know, we're in a bear market, FTX thing happened. This was after, of course, the party happened, but, you know, things were kind of heading in a downward trajectory. And I think the last year, I think people have been getting back into this mode of like, oh my God, regulation is coming, KYC, every single thing. You know, if we're stuck in that mode of thought, fear, fundamentally, scarcity, it's like the dream is going to die. So how do we combat that? Well, let's bring people into lucid dreaming world. Let's go back into this space and let's use our time at night to uh, create fanciful possible versions of how this thing might play out and let's simulate and let's role play and let's LARP in there and let's maybe meet up in the, that proper dream metaverse and do that. So the success of that plus the success of the party, there's like some salience around this notion of dreaming. And uh, what we're going to use it to uh, is basically as, as fuel or the material, the substance that's going to fuel the next version, uh, next iteration of the Dream Oscillator, which will become this uh, end of Q1. Our first, it's going to be like a redrafting basically of our batch process. So the way you join Mochi is you come in and you commit to working on a goal and then you do it with a team. You play the game and then um, if you succeed at whatever it is that you're doing, you join the club. We're actually redrafting that now into this proper dream oscillator thing, which will be kind of like the more proper world building uh, experience. So we're going to take you in the course of eight weeks from you're entering into Web3 as a new character, because that's the that's the the gift that you've been given by getting a, a wallet. You know, it's 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 a new identity, right? And it's different from the screen name of Web2. It's like this is your address, this is your bank account, this is this string is like your name. It's everything. It's a new birth certificate. So taking people from that moment and giving that the proper kind of like grace and space and credence it, it requires, uh, and then take you from that to building your own character and then thinking about and imagining and visualizing the dream world that you want that character to live in, and then start to work in different elements of um, storytelling, narrative creation, myth-making, ritual, 
into how you formulate a little world, which is basically how I think about DAOs. DAOs are like these little toy worlds, right? And then start incorporating different elements of tooling, different, you know, Web3 tooling, uh, crypto tooling, um, and then also stuff from machine learning world to help you kind of just like at least gather a group of people, create an aesthetic, and then spawn a kind of world that you want to work towards, maybe in the context of a DAO. And then by the end of that, kind of incubate that idea further. So that's kind of like where this dream oscillator thing is vibrating towards. Nice. That's, uh, that's really cool to hear. And I think that it's, uh, I'm very also happy to hear that, like keeping web three from becoming reactionary. Cause if, if all we're doing is reacting to impending regulation, like you're saying, like, we're not going to end up in our, in our, in our dream world with uh, borderless coordination and agency and everything. And, uh, if we just, if we just react to what we think is coming around the corner from, from regulators, then uh, that, yeah, I, I can't imagine us ending up in a place that we'll ha- be happy to be in. And so, yeah, I love this uh, this idea of just making sure that we are helping people continue to like dream about what what the space actually should be. Because there's so many of these like you know the traditional like, VR or uh, virtual world things. I've heard some people call them like the you know the the flat earthers, um, where it's like we have all this endless creativity and possibility, and yet we're creating flat planes with real estate and gravity and and it doesn't feel and it's like these lifeless empty spaces um that really should be more that should be more dreamlike definitely yeah i, I saw you guys did an episode recently on uh, crypto loves the moon or that, that was like a big part of like a most recent segment is that right oh the moon yeah, yeah about uh, the party on the there's moon. a party on the moon and it's like you know bitcoin to the moon ethereum to the moon there's a lot of moon memes right and like i think um my sister just worked on a on a project, an NFT project called uh, Lunar Blossom. So like there there is this like strange obsession with the moon, right? And then we have like the solar punk, lunar punk memes, obviously. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that point about like the flat earthers of like, you know, we're just building, you know, buildings with gravity and like we're just kind of like replicating our current physics in a virtual sense. And it's like, that's not what I want to hang out in. Like, you know, like you know, base reality is like pretty good. And I don't think it's going to be replaced by any of that, like, uh, like something like that anytime soon, but it is an opportunity for us to kind of enter virtual spaces where we don't have to start with the base, same base assumptions. And it's kind of why I like, I think lunar punk is like an interesting step in that direction because it like is an affront to this idea of like the sun being at the center, but all of these metaverses start with like kind of the same assumption, which is like a single point of light at the center of the universe that like the whole world turns around. But it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, you look at some of these memes like Dark Forest and stuff, which came out of the three body problem. You know, that book is a radical book. Like that is like the book that if, you know, in 50 years, 100 years time, something pans out in a way that we like. And somebody puts one of us on a stage and asks us, hey, what were the things that you guys read? Three body problems probably going to be that book for me because it starts with this assumption of like there's a planet out there that has three suns and it's created these strange things that can like, you know, they, that can dehydrate themselves and like, what are we going to do? Well, let's use the metaverse to try and figure out how they form their society, right? With all the like hot suns, too hot, suns too close, gravity's all weird, right? Why aren't we doing that in our metaverses, right? You know, they all kind of like function the same. Somebody did tell me more recently though, that there is a metaverse where like there's a sunset every hour. That's kind of cool. You know, it's like we need to push it further and we need to push it into kind of like mathematics and understandings of physics that are just non-classical. So, uh, you know, if you do like a little YouTube search of non-Euclidean spaces and non-Euclidean geometry, there's people making games now that are non-Euclidean. Like, so they're like, the geometry doesn't work the way that you think. So, you know, that old adage of the shortest point between point A and point B is a straight line. 
like in non-Euclidean space, that's not true. And you can create all these funky kind of almost like, what's the name of that famous uh, kind of like uh, optical illusionist uh, artist? I can't think of it right now, but... Escher. Escher, yeah. You can create these like Escherian worlds, basically, uh, in virtual space. And it's like, well, why aren't we doing that? Or why can't we create like memory palaces that are non-Euclidean where we can store more information off of our brains and like, you know, just use it in this kind of like memory cube way. There's so many interesting applications for metaverse, but people are just thinking about it as like a place that people go like, oh, you know, like I'm bored. I'm going to go step in here. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, I'll go, I'll go hang out in my, in my replica of my house in the, in the, the flat plane space. But yeah, these, uh, I would much rather hang out in like in some sort of Escher space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious, like you did a lot, I think that you're you know probably one of the earliest people working on Web3 music back uh, in the day. And I'm curious, like how you think the music space can be, you know, more creatively exploring the opportunities for, for collaboration, or is there anything that you're kind of excited about happening now in, in, in music and Web3 that, or is there still something that you think should be, should exist, but does not exist yet? Yeah, I, I'm still very much entrenched in thinking about how we do music in a different way, because music is so important to go back to the question of like, what are all the things, you know, it's like, well, it's the culture, right? And music is such an integral part of culture. And music keeps people around music inspires people to keep going. So music is such a big piece of this for me. When we were thinking about music in 2016, 2015 through 2017, when we were thinking about how like crypto tools were going to affect music. We were thinking about it from, we were again, starting from the place that we all understood. Music is broken. Uh, you know, record labels are taking too much decentralized record labels effectively. Something like it was some version of that argument, right? And like, you know, the big kind of experimenter meme that was like gripping our attention at the time was like, oh, there was this coalition that happened in music to kind of fix up the payment problem of, of artists re receiving royalties by like creating this global rights database. That's what it was called, the GRD. And it failed, sadly. Uh, it was like a coalition of like all the big labels and publishers and um, performance rights organizations and stuff. And they tried to make this big global database that everybody could access the payment information of everyone and it failed. It was just like one big kind of like uh, cluster F of, um, you know, competing incentives that were not necessarily aligned, trying to make uh, kind of like a comments for music. Uh, and sadly, that didn't happen. But we were just like, oh, crypto, like this is a perfect use case, whatever. And we tried to kind of like for a minute, try to do that thing again. But it ended up not being the approach, I think, that captured people's imagination. So like towards the end of my time working at Ujo Music, a lot of the people on that uh, that team, you know, very kind of like radical thinkers about how we would use some of this stuff. And like the simplest thing that we came up with was, well, let's start giving people collectibles for like items. Um, I'm, a, I'm a record collector and I still am. I'm like... I'm kind of a Luddite when it comes to sound, you know, it's like the things that were made in the 50s and 60s for me still sound the best. And like I collect records from like the 70s and stuff and like that stuff was just recorded on better equipment. Things are improving these days and people who pay attention to it, it still sounds good, but it's like there's still that. So I was just like, why, how do we give people the experience of like having something physical and like keeping something from a purchase, which has been completely devalued in like the modern music uh, or the modern digital economy that we have? And we're just like, well, just give people collectibles. And this was before we had NFTs. So we'd just send people ERC-20s for, um, you know, when they would buy this album. The album was uh, this, this album called Ego by an artist named RAC or Rack. And that was kind of how we were thinking about it. We're like, oh, if people can have like these digital markers, like you can go and find your tribe after this, right? It's like, oh, I was at that show. I got this token. You were at that show. You got this token. We should be friends. 
you know, we were hoping that like these kind of like micro music societies would kind of form on the basis of your taste and your, the things that you contributed to and the things that you invested in, there would be a record of this. And then that would coalesce into like these micro societies that were affinity based groups uh, that had similar values and are at least aesthetic preferences for the kinds of music that they listen to. And, you know, here we are in 2023 and like that's slowly starting to form. And that, that vision, I think, is starting to capture more people's imaginations where it needs to push where I would like to see it push is like these tools need to kind of like be broken and then reformulated and used in like interesting ways that uh, perhaps maybe we weren't thinking about using them. And so I'm a hacker at my core. Like I don't sit around and like, you know, type code basically to hack nuclear mainframes or anything like, but I'm a social hacker and I can take a tool and I can break it and use it in a way that maybe you weren't thinking about it. And um, there are some artists, uh, musicians uh, in the space that are doing really interesting things that are kind of like, forging their own path, not going the record label route and trying to use these Web3 tools to further uh, their mission, to spread their vision, to gather their community and then use that community in a really, really interesting way to kind of like build out the world that it is that they, they think that they want to head towards. And I would love to see more artists kind of take the approach of like, I haven't really thought about um, the right analogy. You know, some people use this like warrior monk kind of like um, um, kind of vision of like how you need to approach making organizations. I think for artists, it can be like, you know, these like artist angel entrepreneur things that like, you know, spawn little micro uh, kind of like societies in the format of DAOs and then use these tools to kind of further their careers and and, and also the mission of the, the, the group of people that they've, uh, the community that they've kind of amassed around them. So there are interesting tools that are cropping up and interesting use cases that I think are cropping up that people didn't see before. I did this one experiment with an artist uh, named uh, Lack Honey uh, last year, where under a pseudonym, I created like a kind of like a bidding war, unbeknownst to him and his community, by the way, using kind of like villain dynamics. So I like created a villain and um, just knowing what I know about how you can use uh, things like party bid whatever just it created a dynamic where like it was economically lucrative for me to kind of play both sides of the thing while they created within their community uh, a narrative around like oh this villain is trying to steal this work this happened all organically when i was just playing the bad guy and it, and it led to a higher price being paid ultimately for the music and for the music video that was produced and this all happened on glass protocol so like Creating interesting dynamics using the economic tools that we're building is something that I would like to see artists using more. And I would like to see builders in this space investing more time into finding. And then there's also another artist uh, named TK who's creating something internal garden. And he's got a superpower brewing uh, that I'm very excited to share more about, but I can't say much at this point. Very cool. I love, uh, love experimentation and dynamics like that, where you can get people to think about something beyond just like, you know, simple exchange of value for song, value for thing. And instead, just like, you know, baking value into into some sort of narrative like that, um, which just makes the community into something more than just a customer artist relationship. That, that's really cool to hear. Yep. It's like uh, something that I've been thinking about is how do we let communities die or evolve elegantly? I feel like sometimes there's this pressure of we need to create something that exists and it exists and it fails when people stop caring like how can people feel like one is that wrong uh do like if uh how can we make people feel more comfortable with the idea of like a community being something that's more ephemeral and like accomplishing a goal like you do with mochi but like 
uh, I feel like people, a lot of people feel like they fail when, I don't know, people stop showing up to the Telegram or Discord and it's like, no, that was cool. Now we're, now we're doing this other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. It is a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, I think there's an idea that says like, you know, something should f- exist for as long as it needs to. And then, you know, when the purpose has been served, then it's like, well, okay, thank you for your time. Uh, appreciate all the, uh, the love and support moving on to the next thing. If you think about it as kind of like an evolution and some more long-term kind of thing, the things that we do, if they, you know, if they reach a terminus, that's fine. That's not the end. It's not failure. It's just like, it's time for you to kind of take what you've learned there and make the next thing. And the next thing hopefully should be bigger, brighter, grander, maybe a little bit more complex and involve elements of your learnings from that previous thing in this new thing. And maybe it'll involve all of the characters or some of the characters that you collected uh, in that first version of the story. And that's certainly been the case for me. You know, I've like I've lived many lives in 10 years of crypto. Uh, I've seen, you know, pretty much every cycle that we've had since Ethereum was at zero. I've been born again. I've died again. I am now born again as this strange uh, kind of anime character that is called Player Zero that you're, is speaking with you right now. So it's like every chance of death is an opportunity to be reborn again. And this idea of reincarnation, I think, is like it happens. We just got to shorten the time scale. It's like not over your entire life. It could, it could happen every day if you wanted to. But, you know, at the organizational level, if you have a good idea and people vibe with it for a while, ride that out until, you know, it's it's reaches its terminus or it evolves into something new. And then take all the learnings that you have and continue to grow those people around you and grow, uh, you know, grow your vision and the world that you're putting around yourself. Failure is just failure if you stop. The, the failure is just stopping. You know, you stop and you're like, okay, I'm done. But you got to take, you know, take the end of something and make that beginning of something, the, the beginning of something great. Nice. Yeah, I think that's great. And we, we can figure out a way to celebrate when people uh, accomplish something cool and then move on to do something else cool. So that's great. Uh, but what's the best just place for people to jump into the Mochi universe uh, as someone who either maybe wants to learn how to lucid dream or learn how to join DAOs or play just play the game or to dream uh, what's the what's like the entry point uh, that you would recommend people uh, reaching out to yep the uh the entry point well well if you want to just follow along the story uh, follow us on bond with mochi so it's twitter bond with mochi but if you want to become a part of this journey we uh invite you to come be a part of the dream oscillator uh cohort that's going to be starting again at the end of q1 probably beginning of q2 we'll see but we're going to start interviews very soon for it and uh, that's going to be the place where you come in and you learn everything that you need to know about what it means to be a mochi and to what it means to, I think, really formulate your own kind of worldview in this space and go out and uh, tackle that thing with a bunch of friends that I think you'll make along the way. So if you want a lucid dream, if you want to learn more about how machine learning tools can be used in advanced ways to kind of uh, create wild, wacky visions for your future DAO, your future religion, your future company, whatever it is that you're trying to make there. If you want to learn about how Web3 crypto tools can be used in radical different ways that people are not thinking of how to use them yet, this oscillator cohort is going to be that place where you will learn all of these things and hopefully by the end of it, be set up properly to go and tackle whatever it is you need to do in this crypto winter with a bunch of interesting people. So that'll be the place to kind of join. In the meantime, you'll probably find us at ETH Denver. We're kind of hatching up a kind of interesting idea that extends this like dream world uh, that we started in Colombia into something that should be very relaxing and bubbly and chill and restorative and rejuvenating uh, at East Denver. And that's as much I'll say about it for now. 
that's awesome. I will definitely keep an eye out for that. And that might push me over the edge to booking that plane ticket. <laughs> there you go. I still need to buy mine. Yeah, I'm basically committed to going, but haven't pulled the trigger on on, on the tickets. But thanks so much for, for joining. I've, I've uh, really thrilled about just, uh, just the stuff that you're building. I think it's uh, it's it makes me optimistic about what's to come in, in this whole space. Amazing. Yeah. Dream big, start small, stick together. That's the vibe. And I'm glad that it leaves you optimistic because that's that's our that's our place here. We're trying to just make everything kawaii. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Dow or Never. Make sure to subscribe at logos.xyz slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at 0xLogos so you never miss out on any of the latest happenings in the Dow world. It's Dow or Never. Never.